Hello, and welcome to Big Fish in the Talent Pool with your host, Aaron Peterson, partner and global talent acquisition consultant with People Results. In each episode, Aaron interviews a corporate head of talent acquisition to shine a light on how they got there, what keeps them up at night, and their views on all the hot topics in TA Today. There's nothing Erin is afraid to ask because she's been there. Now here's your host, Erin Peterson. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Big Fish in the Talent Pool, the podcast designed to feed your hungry, talent-focused brain. In fact, every time I get to interview another big fish, I try to channel you, my listeners, to ask the things that you might want to know. So be sure to message me if you have suggestions for the podcast. I'd love to hear your feedback. A quick shout out to ATAP, the Association of Talent Acquisition Professionals, which is, by the way, another way to feed that hungry brain of yours. ATAP is the professional association for those who are serious about growing their TA careers, and members get access to an inclusive online community with webinars, including the recent Global TA Day replay, which you definitely want to see, trust me. And it's really the only global member-driven not-for-profit representing all of talent acquisition. So I really encourage you to look them up if you're not already a member at atapglobal.org. That's E-A-T-A-P-G-L-O-B-A-L dot O-R-G. Now on to Sheila Crosby-Powell of GHD, which is a global engineering environmental and architectural construction services firm. That's a mouthful, but you'll understand more when you listen to her. She's got a terrific background and story, and I hope you enjoy. Welcome to episode 27 of Big Fish in the Talent Pool. Today, we have global talent acquisition leader, Sheila Crosby-Powell of GHD. Sheila, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Erin. Thanks. Great to be here. Sheila has a really unique background. Uh, having been with the same firm, Accenture, and then the previous version of Accenture, which was Arthur Anderson and Company, for almost, well, most of her 30-plus year career. And then she just made the leap to GHD only two years ago. So we're going to dig into GHD in a moment. But first, Sheila... I would love for you to tell my audience about your career trajectory, especially having been at one place for over 30 years, which is really unheard of anymore. Sure. Yeah, you're right. It, I guess it is kind of a unique uh, career trajectory. It's funny when it's your own career, you don't think of it that way. But as you look back, which you've made me do, um, <laughs> it, it, is, it is interesting. So I graduated from Santa Clara University in the early 80s, I refer to as the dark ages in some ways. And there weren't a lot of jobs available to sociology majors at that time, but I was lucky enough to land a position with what then, as you said, was part of Arthur Anderson and Company. It was the Management Information Consulting Division, and I actually worked in consulting for two years. My real career interest really resided more in human resources, which back then they called personnel. So an opportunity came up um, after the birth of my first child, um, after actually taking some time away and working for another company for not quite a year, I moved into recruiting and I basically was the campus recruiter. And that was the beginning of my career in human resources and uh, really the start of my first love, which has always been talent acquisition. So yeah, yeah. I held a number of different roles in human resources over the next several years. I was based in San Francisco at the time and got involved in, you know, really the entire HR life cycle as an HR generalist. Eventually moved back into talent acquisition when change management became a thing in the consulting industry 
And as you know, because we worked together in that space during that time, um, we were looking to hire um, people who at, at executive executive levels with that type of experience um, and really build that part of the practice at what is now Accenture. Left the company again and went and worked, strangely enough, for an options trading company and set up really their whole sort of human resources and operations infrastructure everything from what kind of benefits they were going to have to how they were going to pay their options traders to a training program, a recruiting program, et cetera, uh, which was really fascinating. But after about three years, I started getting bored. So I had to go back to where things were never boring. (laughs) And I went back to what was then Anderson Consulting, uh, Mm -hmm. which then became um, Accenture. And not too many years after that is when I moved into a role on what it was a newly formed center of expertise at a global level focused on talent acquisition. And I've been in a global role ever since. And that's about 25 years ago. That you were actually my boss for a while. So <laughs> <laughs> at a time when I was learning executive recruiting, I had not done that before. And so I just want to say out loud, thank you, Sheila. You <laughs> taught me what I know or at what I was learning at the time about executive recruiting. And it was, it was quite a, a ride, especially for young recruiters who had really only done campus recruiting and then mid-level recruiting, which most of us on the team, I think, had. So uh, it was fun, wasn't it? It was fun. It was, and you know, what I've, what I've realized as I look back on my career, part of what was fun about that and what's been fun as I look back on the parts of my career I enjoyed the most is when there wasn't something already set up, when it was new, when it was a clean slate and we had to figure it out. I had never done executive recruiting either. And then really in the company, there wasn't a lot of that, right? Mm-hmm. The company really was more of a hire students right out of university and train them and grow them through the company. So when we started doing experienced and then executive executive recruiting, it was really, you know, a new horizon for us. And we all kind of figured it out together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And as I recall, you had full license to just try stuff, do innovative (laughs) things. So I want to talk more about especially the global recruiting team that you worked on at Accenture for for quite some time. But let's pivot real quick, because I think uh, my listeners want to know more about GHD. Mm -hmm. Just, you know, give us kind of the uh, mission, the market position, number of employees, where are they? Sure. You know, what are what are your accountabilities as the global talent acquisition leader? What, what does that look like on a daily basis right now? Okay, sure. So GHD um, actually is a very well-known company in Australia and parts of APAC, primarily in New Zealand. And it actually was formed in 1928 in Australia. So it's been around for a long time. But we're really, um, I would say over the last four to five years, really have expanded in a big way into North America, but it's not as well known from a brand perspective here. But GHD's mission is together with our clients, we create lasting community benefit. And that sounds really nice. Um, Yeah, but it really truly is what we do. So GHD is, most people, if you have to explain it in a short way, you just say we're an engineering consulting firm. But Um, Our vision is water, energy, and urbanization made sustainable for generations to come. Hmm. So the kind of engineering that we do is very much focused in water, energy and resources, environment, property and buildings, and transportation. And we actually also have an architecture arm uh, primarily in Australia. 
Okay. And so what kind of roles then are you needing to hire? And is it you know, growth-based hiring or more replacement of existing resources? What Some of both. Some of both, yeah. So we hire a lot of civil engineers, a lot of environmental engineers. We hire architects. We hire geologists. We hire scientists. I mean, you name it. What I've really enjoyed about GHD in the two and a half years that I've, I've been here is just how really down-to-earth people are. And when you think about the type of engineering that they're doing and the type of work that we do, it makes sense, right? They're not people who are like, you know, talking about how wonderful and great they are. They're just out there doing what I think is really amazing work to make, truly make our world a better place. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's really a pretty, a pretty cool area. And we're globally ranked number 26 in, in engineering firms by engineering news record. One of the things I love is that we're big without being too big, but we're not just a mom and pop shop. So we have about 10,000 people and we have over 200 offices across 13 countries, but our largest locations are, our largest countries are Australia and North America, both US and, and Canada. Wow. What a challenge. What an interesting challenge and quite different from the kind of talent that you were hiring at Accenture, I would imagine. So you had to probably get smart about uh, those kinds of roles real quick, civil engineers and geologists and uh, other scientists. Is, is that is that part of your onboarding to just kind of spend some time with the folks doing the work? And yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, as the talent acquisition lead, you know, my role is really more on strategy and developing global consistency and practices and um, taking what was really a very sort of regionally based company and pulling us together from a talent acquisition perspective um, which also speaks to the brand and the awareness, right? If we if we continue to operate very separately, you know, we do it this way in Australia and this way in the United States, et cetera, it complicates the brand awareness. So um, that was a major reason why um, this role was was created. But so I obviously need to understand the business and all of that, but I'm not doing the operational recruiting myself. So luckily mm-hmm. I have a team of amazing people who really truly understand it and know exactly what's needed and and do those interesting and very important parts of talent acquisition for our company. Uh, You mentioned that in Australia and New Zealand, it's very well known. Mm -hmm. So my guess is that the employment brand doesn't need a whole lot of work in that part of the world. But if you were to call up an engineer here in the U.S., they may not necessarily know who it is. So are are you working on the global employment brand or? Yeah, we actually are just about to release a new brand within about a month. And as part of that, obviously, we'll be aligning our talent brand with our overall company brand. But we've also done the research to really fine tune our our client value proposition, as well as our employee value proposition, which of course will be incredibly important in the talent acquisition space. So uh, we have a really good sense now of what that value proposition looks like. And I feel, and we've had many discussions about this, that we as GHD just need to do a better job of telling our story because we have an amazing story to tell. But I think it's partly the Australian heritage of the company. We tend to not be boastful about ourselves. And as you know, in the talent acquisition space, you kind of have to get out there and be boastful or nobody knows who you are. So so we're working on that. So we're getting better at, at uh, storytelling and being able to tell our story in a very compelling and authentic way. 
Yeah, I I think that's right. And and anyone developing a global employment brand has to pay attention to those cultural differences, right? So it, it makes that's a right. whole lot of sense that uh, what works in one part of the world doesn't work in another part of the world. And yet, if you are one firm, you, you have to tell a coordinated story. So exactly. interesting challenge. In developing the EVP and the candidate value proposition and, you know, kind of all that coordinated view. Did you have external help or did you do it all in-house? We did have, yeah, we did have external help or we continue to have external help on that. Absolutely. And uh, the external company did a lot of the interviewing and the research in order to really get the honest information from our people, from our clients, um, from our candidates, so that they really could get the clear picture of, of, you know, what is that value proposition to our people and to our clients? And how do we frame it in a way that's uh, honest and interesting and compelling? And you say it's going to be rolled out in a month? Yes, so? yes, before okay. the end of October. So exciting times. All right. I'm going to keep an eye on it. because <laughs> I, I, I can't wait to see that. That sounds, uh, sounds very cool. I don't suppose you can give us a preview as to, you know, maybe one or two of the descriptor words that have been agreed on regarding the, the brand? Well, so our our brand, our, our new strategy is called Make It Real. Our, so our, and our brand really revolves around that in a big way. Um, so our imagery is going to change, you know, just in terms of things like colors and how we represent ourselves through imagery. But a lot of the, the words that we say about ourselves, I wouldn't say are changing significantly, but I think we're t- going to be telling the story um, in a way that's much clearer. So And it's interesting because the things that I've seen that are coming out as our employee value proposition are really the things that attracted me to GHD. I wasn't looking to leave Accenture at the time. It was actually an ex-colleague of mine from Accenture who is actually our people leader in Australia at GHD who called me a few years ago and uh, told me that she'd like me to consider this this new um, position at GHD. And I was like, yeah. Now, I'm not really looking to make a change, but she convinced me to talk to her boss, who's now my boss. And after 30 minutes, I was intrigued enough and the rest is history. So things that attracted me and that are part of our employee value proposition are that it's an employee-owned company. So we are not a public company. You know, I mean, the headline in my mind is the owners the work owners here. Work or- here. Exactly. The in the place. And I mean, Jeff Bezos is famous for using the example of when he was a kid, his family rented a place and it was all torn up inside. And mm-hmm. it just dawned on him that when you rent a place, you don't care about it. When you own it, you take care of it. So I very wonder if that's true. the concept, right? Yes, very, very true. And I, you definitely feel that. You definitely feel that here, whether you are one of the owners or not. It's just, it's like a family business. Wow. A family business with 10,000 employees. <laughs> <laughs> it's a big family. <laughs> right. Okay. Excellent. Okay. So big global projects sometimes, depending on the company, emanate from the U.S. because of the way the U.S. is. We just you know think big and we like to try stuff and then we like to export them. But there's a whole lot of cool stuff going on in other countries too. Do you have an example of a great idea that was imported into the U.S. or, you know, let's call it exported to the rest of the world from a country other than the U.S. in your time working on global projects? Oh, my goodness. Well, definitely with GHD because our Australian uh, business um, and, and you know, talent acquisition and HR are much more mature than other parts of the world. 
And actually, we're right now, we're sharing with Pride a lot of the work that our Australian teams have done in the area of internships and graduate recruiting, really bringing that to other parts of the world, especially North America and EMEA, where we don't have that same focus. And, and everybody wants to hire grads, but it, it isn't as embedded into the business in other parts of the world as it has been in Australia for a number of years. So uh, they've really got some amazing programs and knowing how to really outreach to the students. But as you know, campus recruiting is done so differently from one country to another. So we're really, you know, borrowing the best of best of breed from our Australian compatriots. But I'm trying to think back too on, you know, when I was part of the global team at Accenture and did a lot of different projects. It was definitely much more of a, the experts are in the U.S. because that, again, was the most mature market and we're sharing it globally. But I think it wasn't so much that the U.S. had all the ideas. It's It was more we needed to make the connections with our colleagues all over the world and find out what they were doing and then what did we want to take and then and then you know, make more global, whether it was particular sourcing techniques or it was ways of assessing candidates. Um, you know, one of the things reminded me even at GHD, the use of competencies or, you know, behavioral-based type of assessments, psychometric assessments are very common in, in Australia, Asia, PAC, not so common in North America. And yet, strangely, at Accenture, that was something I was very much a part of. So sometimes I think it depends on the business, the culture of the business, and it's it's really working alongside those colleagues in other parts of the world. And mm-hmm. you're right, finding out what is it that they're doing and don't just assume that right. your country, whatever country you are in, has all the answers, even if it is where headquarters is or where the most expertise in the country is. Exactly. And uh, it starts with putting people from different countries on the team, right? So yes. at the time when that global team was in full swing, it was resources from Germany, from France, from the Latin U.S., America. from Latin America, right? Um, Asia, yeah. India, right? India, yeah. And that was what gave me uh, a whole lot of confidence because I felt like, you know, having worked in Germany for three years and having had U.S. based people call me up and say, you know what you ought to do. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. I sometimes, sometimes kind of thought to myself and I hopefully didn't say it out loud, but it was sort of like, how do you know we're not doing that already? You know, right. like, don't assume all the best ideas come out of the U.S. There's a whole lot of innovation especially in India, especially in, in Germany and other parts of Europe and, and Asia. So anyway, that's yeah. a little bit of there's my own personal. Yeah, there's innovation everywhere, right? And I think we all tend to make assumptions that the lens we're looking through is the best lens. And I would say, but what I've learned in working in you know global roles where it isn't that the people I work with report to me, reported to me, I was having to influence and persuade, but I, it, I think it's really seek to understand and listen first gather the information, pull the best people together to work on things, and then make it happen. So the thing about that is, Sheila, it takes patience. <laughs> and I, I I have always admired that about you. You have a ton of patience, and I don't. So I, <laughs> I realized pretty early that I needed to um, work on transactional things. I'm, I'm, I love, you know, the frontline recruiting stuff. I also do projects, but the, boy, the big, huge, enterprise-wide, long-term projects that you guys worked on, that took patience. Yes. And maybe it was growing up with four older brothers that taught me a lot of patience. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay, well, yeah, I guess, yeah, you take what, what you get from the family fortune, right? Growing up with four older brothers taught me a lot of lessons that have served me well in my life, I have to say. Little do you realize it when you're growing up and complaining about it. <laughs> Indeed. Now, you're in uh, the Phoenix area. Correct. But you lead this global team. What What's the hardest part of that? What What is the most, where, where do you find the most friction with you being in one part of the world and pretty much everybody else is somewhere else? Um, you know, since I've been with GHD, it really hasn't been hard because I've, I've worked in that type of an environment and calls at all different, you know, times of the day mm -hmm. for a long time. But I would say it isn't necessarily that it's hard, but it's something that takes time is forming those relationships. And in, in certain countries, that is so important to you being able to get anything done is really making sure that you form those relationships and they have to be trusted relationships. You can't just assume people are going to trust you and believe in your expertise just because you have a title. Um, and I have found that that's particularly true in a country, again, like Australia. I needed to spend some physical time there. When I was at Accenture, I spent a lot of time in Latin America, for example. It's like people need to see your eyeballs and speak to you and get to know you as a person mm -hmm. and really understand why and how you are an expert and develop that trust. So that's been really important. Um, I think actually the, the hardest part is just, you know, having to be on calls when you need people from all different parts of the world to be on the same call finding the time that works, that doesn't make it inconvenient. You feel like it's always inconvenient for the same person. <laughs> um, right. So it's balancing that. And I, I think people in recruiting and talent acquisition tend to be very self-sacrificing. Mm -hmm. um, so sometimes I feel like I have to protect them from themselves. Yeah. Like, you know, hey, you're always having to be on this call at 10 o'clock at night and you never say anything. Like, you know, maybe every other month we need to switch it so it's inconvenient for the rest of us. But they all, no, no, it's okay. There's only one of me. Yeah, but you're still important. So, so I would say that's one of the hardest things, you know, when you need to have somebody from the Middle East, the UK, Australia, New Zealand, the US and Canada all yeah. on a call together. There's never a time that works for everybody. So thank God for technology and being able to record things though, right? So we can share it with people who aren't able to make it and get their thoughts and feedback. True. Later. Yes. Technology so there, there is that. And, uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. and I think you're right. I think recruiters in general tend to be people pleasers. And yes. so they're probably not going to complain too much. They'll just sort of buck up and do the work and get on the call or, or watch the, the, uh, the recording. So that's, yes, um, exactly. <laughs> could we have that now? But back in the day when, when we could, back in the day, listen to me, when, when we could travel before March, mm -hmm. You actually, yeah. you, you've got some frequent flyer miles, don't you? How many times have you been to Asia slash, you know, Australia, New Zealand? Well, so I know I've been to Australia 18 times, but <laughs> um, I think I've been to Japan eight or nine, China, I think eight times, Singapore three or four, you know, wow. et cetera, et cetera. So I used to, at Accenture, I used to do, so as you know, I helped really implement, I was kind of the global expert on behavioral interviewing at the time. And mm -hmm. I conducted behavioral interviewing training in I think 18 different countries. Right. So a lot of times I'd go back, you know, to the same countries, but um, I would do like a one month sort of tour of duty through yeah. Asia pack. Um, and I, 
you know, literally do like seven cities and four countries in 30 days kind of a thing. So I did that a lot. And then, of course, during the Taleo deployment back then, it was a 14-month, you know, phased deployment, certain number of countries at a time. And I was physically on the ground. So I was, I flew, I think in 2006, I flew 160,000 miles, air miles in that one year. Yeah. So yeah, I haven't done anything that dramatic since, but, um, but yeah, I do. Um, and I, I've been to Brazil and Argentina, I think eight or nine times. Those are the big ones for me. Europe a few times, but, but not as extensive as Asia PAC and, uh, and Latin America. Very cool. And obviously not everybody is able to do that or willing to do it. You know, some people just don't want to travel that much. What do you think it is about you that sort of put you in the place where you said yes to all that being being away from home and or taking advantage of all the wonderfulness of of traveling the world? <laughs> well, it's interesting. I think it it depended on where I was in my life and what was going on. And when that Taleo deployment, which I knew was going to be literally a year of almost constant travel, I think I was away from home 85% of that year, both my daughters were away at college and they were out of state. And I had just recently gotten divorced. So it's like when this opportunity came up, I'm like, yeah, why not? This is the time for me to do it, right? If I'm going to do it, this is the time to do it. So if it had happened even a year before, I would not have done it. So sometimes it's just those opportunities. But I think what I think there's a couple things in terms of me enjoying that at at the times that it's happened in my life. Growing up, we moved quite a bit. And actually, the high school I ended up graduating from, just because of where we lived, was an international boarding school. I actually lived on the island of Hawaii, and the public schools at that time were not very good. So the only alternative we had was a boarding school on the same island. But I went to school with kids from many different countries, most of them Asia-Pacific countries, so I was very comfortable and really enjoyed uh, the cultures that I got to know in high school. And so I think I was just kind of open to that as I got into my career. It wasn't something I thought, oh, I want a job where I travel all the time. That never yeah. entered my mind. It was more that opportunities would come up and I'd be like, yeah, I want to go do that. Mm-hmm. But it depended on what was going on in my life. When my daughters were young, I didn't travel as much. So right. it really kind of you know varied based on what was going on. Uh, my dad's side of the family actually comes from a generations of sea captains. And my three times oh. great grandfather actually was a sea captain and is buried in Hong Kong. And I found his gravestone from 1856 when I was in oh, Hong Kong cool. a few years ago. So yeah, so I think it's a little bit in my blood, um, sort of that adventurous, yeah, let's go try anything. But well, well, I talk a lot with my podcast guests about the willingness to take advantage of career opportunities in some cases that don't exist unless you move. So you kind of have to be that person who's willing to take a risk, comfortable with ambiguity, willing to kind of step out and uh, get out of your comfort zone. So true. And that usually means moving to a different place. What's interesting about your story is you have not moved, You well, except maybe from house to house in the Phoenix area, but you have literally traveled the world almost nonstop for decades. So that's been your version of the ability to take advantage of those great career opportunities by being mobile. Other than moving from San Francisco to Phoenix since I started my career. Yeah. yeah that's the biggest move I've Oh, that's made. right. That's right. Yeah. You did live in I started San in San Francisco. Francisco. Yeah. 
especially for women, you know, we often talk about that as well, that uh, sometimes the opportunities don't present themselves because people assume that women leaders, for whatever reason, you know, are not willing to make the sacrifices or they might have other responsibilities. Mm -hmm. But you got to ask them because the answer might be yes. And I think in many cases it is. So I don't know. Did you ever feel like you you were passed over for an, an opportunity, you know, because people assumed you wouldn't be game for it? Once we got out of the 80s, no. <laughs> <laughs> Those darn 80s. Those darn 80s. Yes, yes. <laughs> but that was also early in my career, right? So the same opportunities wouldn't have necessarily been presented to me. You've achieved a lot in your career, Sheila. What would you say you're most proud of? There have been so many things that I've done and, and been involved in, but I would say if I had to kind of put it all in a summary in terms of what I'm proud of, I think it's the mentoring and the counseling and the training of others, and especially especially other women, um, and especially early on, right, again, during those times when it was really tough to be a woman, especially a working woman um, mm -hmm. in corporate America, really mentoring anybody, regardless of male, female, or anything else that has been important, and then teaching people, you know, in the business, not just talent acquisition people, but also teaching, you know, people how to really be able to conduct an interview and make a, a confident decision about a candidate. Because mm -hmm. that is a huge decision. It's not just a decision for yourself and your team. It's a decision for the company. It's also a decision for, in a way for that candidate, right? So it's a, it's a huge thing. And for people to be able to ha have the skills and feel comfortable conducting an interview and really making a decision about a candidate, I, I'm really proud of, of the impact I've been able to make on people literally all over the world and their ability to do that. Yeah, I, I love that because behavioral interview style in particular, what I learned when I learned it, um, also at Accenture, was that it is about confidence. It's the ability to say a confident yes or no and be sure that you've got the right evidence to be able to back it up. Now, people being what they are, sometimes there's still a little bit of a gray area and you can't always be 100% sure, but it sure does get you over that hump of, yeah. at least I know I asked the right questions and probed in the right way so that I could come to a point where I felt I had evidence one way or another, whether this person would would uh, have the behaviors we need to see. So it's it's huge, actually. And it's hard, right? It is. It's not easy. Yeah. It is definitely mm -hmm. not easy. But if you can do it well. Yeah, especially for business people who they do something else all day long other than interview. That's you know? right. That's right. Yeah. And <laughs> so, they're, they're typically comfortable asking about skills and experience, mm -hmm. right? But when it comes to those sort of softer things that tend to be the things that make or break somebody, right, in terms of their success going forward, because you can teach people the technical things about their job, but you can't teach somebody as easily to be, like, be a self-starter, to have integrity, or, you know, those things that can be really critical to their long-term success. So, yeah, that's so been true. Really, really something. And strangely enough, I'm doing it again at, at GHD. I'm teaching okay. uh, behavioral interviewing again, but so awesome. I get to do more of it. Yeah. That's such important work. I always have to ask about a mistake. Uh, I think it's really important for especially aspiring talent acquisition leaders to hear that it's not just a straight line upward when you are someone who is a leader and that we all learned from stuff. I'm just curious, do you have an example of something you really learned an important lesson from, a mistake you made or something that you wish you'd done differently coming up? There's been lots of them, really. But like you said, that's really where you learn things. Two things come to mind. One has to do with stakeholder engagement and management. 
and making assumptions. And the other one has more to do with the fact that talent acquisition is part of HR and assumptions that I've made in the past based on that. So I'll talk about the first one. So Mm -hmm. stakeholder engagement. So I don't know whether it's just me or it's also a part of sort of being an American and American culture, but I think we tend to be very action focused. And I personally am someone that I don't have to have every piece of information and every data point to be able to move forward and make a decision. Um, in fact, it kind of drives me crazy. It's like I want to get a certain amount of information and then I want to I want to make a decision and I want to move forward. And one of the mistakes I made actually somewhat recently after I joined GHD was not taking the time to realize that some people don't, you know, and, and I should know this, right? Some people don't have that same orientation. And you may need to, even though it's frustrating, you may need to consult a lot more than you normally would mm-hmm. just to get people comfortable that the decision you're making, even though it may not be a different decision than what you would have made three or four weeks earlier, you have to bring them along in that journey at whatever pace is comfortable for them. And if they're a key stakeholder, you've got to spend that time. Mm-hmm. And it's hard when you've got, you know, you have things you need to get done in a certain amount of time and make happen, but you also have to bring certain people along on the journey. So that's been a really important thing for me to learn. And again, I think people are different, but also cultures are different and understanding mm-hmm. Those differences are really important in terms of people who need more time to come along that journey with you. In terms of the other one that I mentioned, which was probably something I learned a long time ago and I think is really important for people in talent acquisition, building a career to understand, is talent acquisition is almost always a part of human resources. Human resources, for the most part, is very internally focused. Talent acquisition is not, right? It's right. it's very externally focused. So I learned you really have to develop a strong understanding of and a strong relationship with your marketing and brand colleagues and really form that strong partnership with them, even though you're not part of the, maybe the same internal organization in a company, because that's where I, I know I spend a lot of my time with my marketing colleagues. And when I first joined GHD, I told them, you're going to be my best friends. <laughs> I need you to be my best friends. And, you know, and yes, of course, my HR colleagues, uh, I need their expertise and their knowledge of our business and of our hiring managers and, and all of that. But from a talent acquisition perspective, we really need to be closely aligned with marketing, even if organizationally we aren't. And it took me time to figure that out. Would you say there is maybe today, just because we have a more advanced society overall in terms of the recognition of the science and the art of marketing, that people more quickly come to that conclusion that talent acquisition is actually really kind of conjoined with marketing as well? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I mean, I can't imagine everything's about brand, right? Um, Your brand on Facebook for, you know, your brand in social media as a person, right? We, we all have a brand and for some people that's more important than for others, but as a company, absolutely. Your brand is so tied to, the kind of people that you're going to attract to your company, the kind of company you're going to become, that, yeah, talent acquisition and marketing have to be closely linked. But even before we had social media and brand was a thing, I think that was important, but we didn't understand that at the time. And it's Mm -hmm. just become more and more important. Right. It's just evolved. Wow. Great learnings. Thank you for sharing that. Is there anything you would advise the 24-year-old Sheila now that you know what you know? I I thought about when you told me you were going to ask me that question, I really thought about it. And and at first I was thinking, not, you know, I wouldn't do anything differently because I, you know, 
you don't want everything to be perfect or you don't learn the lessons. But the one thing that I would tell 24-year-old Sheila, because I didn't do it very well at the time, and I find I have to, or I need to coach people on this all the time, is setting boundaries. Hmm. So, and, and I think actually the generation that's really coming into the workforce now and over the last few years is really pretty good about this. But, and maybe it's my, you know, coming into the work world when I did, but it's setting those boundaries for yourself, whether it's in your personal life, but definitely in your work life, because nobody's going to set them for you. So, you know, like the example of the person in, you know, the UK who's like on a call with us at 11 o'clock at night, mm-hmm. you know, if, if that's creating a problem for that person, they need to say something. They need to create that boundary and say, hey, you guys, even if it's once a once every few months, can we have the call at a time that's good for me? If you don't set those boundaries, nobody else will. And I, you know, at the time of my life, when I was 24, I actually had my first child already. I had just recently started my career and you want to make, you know, you want to make an impression and you want everybody to think you're great. But if you make yourself available 24-7, people will take advantage of that. Not because they're trying to take advantage of you, but just you've set a precedent, right? And so you have to create those boundaries for yourself, for your well-being, and also so that you don't get taken advantage of. So I think that's something really important that I I wish I'd known at 24, but I think I finally figured out at around 30. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and it's it's timeless advice too, because especially in the age of COVID, where everybody has their work and their personal completely gemished together, uh, it's it's never been more important to to know that and embrace it. So uh, great, great thinking, great advice. Thank you for that. Well, Sheila, this has been just tremendous to hear all that you've been up to, all you've been doing and accomplishing and just this amazing, wonderful person that you've developed into. It's, oh, it's been a, a, a treat. Thank <laughs> you for being willing to spend the time, especially at the kind of the end of your day, but actually probably the beginning of the, the next day for all the regions that you <laughs> oversee. So I'm guessing you're 24-7 even when you don't want to be. Yeah, although Fridays are good because half my world is on their weekend already. <sighs> Perfect. So. <laughs> Perfect. And then it ramps up on Sunday afternoon. That's over. right. That's right. It's the <laughs> don't look at your email on Sunday, um, drawing that boundary, right? <laughs> yes. Perfect. Good thinking. Love it. All right. Well, thank you again. And uh, good luck to you in all the interesting challenges you have coming up at GHD. Thanks so much, Aaron. Appreciate it. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Big Fish in the Talent Pool. This podcast is independently produced in collaboration with ERE.net, and we would love to hear your feedback. You can email Erin directly at E-P-E-T-E-R-S-O-N at people-results.com. You can also follow Erin on Twitter at Erin McPeterson, connect with her on LinkedIn, and learn more about her practice at people-results.com.